Well, I want you to take your Bibles, please, and thank you, by the way, for praying with me and continuing to pray for those folks. But I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me today to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and we're going to go to chapter number 16, 1 Samuel 16. And as soon as you have your Bible open to 1 Samuel 16, I'm going to ask you to then turn, hold that place in 1 Samuel 16, and turn to 2 Samuel chapter number 2. 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel chapter number 2. And then once you've got both of those places uh, uh, in your hand, I want you to hold the pages between those two chapters uh, in your hand. I want you to hold those pages between your thumb and forefinger and just keep hanging on to them for a few minutes. I'll explain why to you in just a moment. Well, over the course of 2020, Um, Almost all of us became adept at using a service that perhaps uh, most of us had never, ever used before. That is that we began to know what it means to Zoom, right? Prior to March of 2020, had you said, hey, meet me on Zoom, I, I wouldn't honestly have known what you meant. I had never used the service prior to that. But over the last year, most all of us have had to use it for some reason or another. Maybe your office closed and people went home and began to work remotely and so the only way that you could meet and uh, uh, collaborate on your projects was you had to come together uh, on Zoom. Many of you are students and you're going to school tomorrow, not on a campus, but via Zoom. You've had to learn to do that. Teachers have had to learn to teach their entire class uh, through Zoom. Right? Uh, maybe you um, have gone to life group with Zoom. There was a season when all of our life groups were meeting by Zoom. A number of them still are. We still have groups that are meeting by Zoom now. I remember back in May, we celebrated Mother's Day with my mother via Zoom. We had our entire family across the Southeast all together on Zoom, and we couldn't be together physically, but that's the way uh, we celebrated Mother's Day. In all sorts of arenas, we've had to learn to, to communicate Uh, in this fashion. Now, if you're not one of those folks and you haven't had to do that, let me explain to you how it works. The only way that you can participate in a Zoom meeting is if someone uh, decides that they're going to host a Zoom meeting or an event. And that person becomes the host. And they're they're the person who controls that entire meeting. So that host will will set up a time and a day and, and they will create a Zoom event. Now, if you are invited to the Zoom event, you will receive an email or a text in which there will be a link for you to join the Zoom meeting. And so you just open up your email, you click the link, and and it moves you to the Zoom meeting. But now here's the thing you have to know about Zoom, that when you click the link, you do not automatically get to enter the Zoom event. There's another step that you have to go through, and that that intermediate step is called the waiting room, right? So Zoom puts you not into the Zoom event, but into the Zoom waiting room. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not a waiting room like a physical waiting room at the hospital where you get up and drive to it, and you sit in the waiting room. You're still in your house. You're still in your pajamas, right? But, But you're in a waiting room. It is a digital waiting room, and you cannot go beyond that waiting room. By that I mean you can't see who's in the meeting. You can't see their faces. You can't hear them talking. They can't see you. They can't hear anything that you're saying. You are, you are, uh, there's a barrier between you and them and you cannot 
enter the meeting until you are let out of the waiting room by the host until that host clicks a meeting, or I'm sorry, clicks a button, and when they click that button, you suddenly are ushered into the meeting and out of the waiting room. If you understand Zoom now, would you say amen? Amen. Here's what I want you to know. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, David was invited to an event. It wasn't a Zoom event, but it was an event that would change his life, and in fact, it would change the world forever. The event that David was invited to was that David was going to be anointed king of the Jews. He would become the king of the nation of Israel. The invitation arrived in his inbox in 1 Samuel chapter number 16. But the coronation of David as the king of Israel did not begin until 2 Samuel chapter number 2. Which, by the way, is not only 15 chapters removed from the invitation, it is about 15 years after David was anointed to be the king before he became the king. And those 15 years... And the 15 chapters that you're currently holding between your thumb and forefinger, that is David's waiting room. And David could not leave the waiting room. He could not enter into this great invitation of being the king until God allowed him to enter. I want you to write this down somewhere in your notes, and I really want you to do it because I don't ever want you to forget it. You're going to learn from it today. It is that God put David into his waiting room. God put David into his waiting room for a very important reason. And as long as David was in that room, the invitation was only an invitation. The event had not yet occurred. He was not yet king. He wore no crown. He sat upon no throne. He exercised no authority as king. He could not leave the waiting room until God clicked the button and he was ushered into the promise of becoming the king. Now, would you agree with me that waiting is hard? Agree or disagree? It's hard. If you've ever had a loved one go into the surgical OR and you've waited in the waiting room, particularly if the operation that they were having was a life-threatening or a life-saving procedure and there was real question as to whether or not they would survive the procedure, and you've waited in the waiting room, you have a sense of how difficult waiting is. A few years ago when Tracy was diagnosed with cancer and she had to have a surgery, I remember so well those hours sitting in the waiting room at the hospital and, and, and laboring in my spirit and wondering and worrying and praying and asking God that she would be okay. And when the doctor, I saw him come through the doors to come give us the report when the surgery was over and I embarrassed myself, I bolted out of my chair and ran across the room to meet him because the hours of waiting were so Difficult. I've already mentioned some families in our church today who are waiting for their loved ones to be better. The, the fact is, waiting is difficult. Maybe you hold the memory of someone that you love dearly, someone that you love more than any person in the world, and that person has passed. And you have walked away from 
a fresh grave. And this person knew Christ and they're with the Lord and your hope is that you will be reunited with them one day and, and, and you, you live, you stand in that hope that this is not the end. But for now, all you can do is wait. You have no other option. Now, maybe you're single and you don't want to be. Maybe you're single and you're glad, okay? But maybe you're single and you don't want to be. And you're waiting for Mr. Right to come along. Or you're waiting for Mrs. Perfect to come along. And by the way, I just should warn you that Mr. Right is never always right. And Mrs. Perfect is never completely perfect, right? So you know, measure your expectations. But all you can do is just wait. Or maybe you have a prodigal. Some of us in this room know what it is to have a prodigal son or daughter. And, and they're in a season in their lives when they've, they've, they're, they're away from you and they're, and they're making destructive choices and, and they're entangled. Their life is entangled in a life of sin and you cannot fix it as much as you'd want to as a mother or father. You cannot fix it and you cannot change them. And the only thing that you can do is wait. Waiting is hard, isn't it? It's difficult. And so my question to you is, what is it that you're waiting for? What is your waiting room all about? What are you waiting for God to fix? What are you waiting for him to finish? What are you waiting for him to do? We're going to talk about waiting today. I need to give you a warning, though, before we jump into our text, and it is to say that when we are waiting, if we're not careful, it's easy for a negative response to the waiting to rise up within us. If you're not careful in the waiting, you can become discouraged. Or in the waiting, you can become impatient. In the waiting, you can even become uh, angry. You might get angry at God that he's not resolving the issue or settling the dispute or, or, or restoring the marriage or healing your loved one or whatever it is. And if you're not careful while you wait, you can, you can get into trouble. You know, we see this in a lot of examples in the Bible, one of which would be the story of Abraham. Don't turn, but you can read it later. Genesis chapter 16 tells us the story uh, of Abraham's mistake, Abraham's impatience uh, when God had promised uh, Abraham and Sarah that they would have a son in their old age and the years were just passing and Sarah was not conceiving and so they got impatient and Abraham ended up fathering a, a son with uh, Sarah's servant Hagar because they just thought God wasn't going to do it. They got tired of waiting and of course that was a, an awful mistake and the repercussions of that mistake still continue even until today. So just know that the, that the waiting room is a dangerous place and it's easy for us to have a negative response if we're not careful. Today we're going to talk about waiting and we're going to learn how to find joy in our waiting as we watch David in his waiting as well. Now that means that our time together is going to be a little bit different today than normal because whereas normally we would land on one passage, one text, and we would spend our entire time talking about that text because we're going to survey some of David's experiences through those 15 chapters, we're going to move through several chapters today. 
And that'll be a little bit of a different way of studying the scriptures. But I want to begin, first of all, not in Samuel. I want to begin in the book of Isaiah and give you a text which is foundational to this idea of finding joy in our waiting. So hold your finger in 1 Samuel 16. We'll be right back to it. Go to Isaiah chapter 40, please. If you don't know where Isaiah is, it is uh, uh, kind of in the middle of your Bible. Just go right past Psalms and you'll find it. Isaiah chapter number 40. While you're turning to Isaiah 40, let me make sure you understand that the prophecies of Isaiah 40 to 66, so it's the last section of the book of Isaiah, these prophecies are words of encouragement to the Jewish people who are languishing in captivity. They've been in captivity for decades and they are losing heart and losing hope that God is ever going to get them out of captivity, that they're ever going to be restored back to their homeland, and that they're ever going to be a free people again. And so in Isaiah 40, Isaiah begins to prophesy about their restoration. And some years after the prophecies are actually recorded, they're in captivity reading these encouraging uh, words from the lips of Isaiah. Remember, they're languishing while they wait in their captivity. They're discouraged. They're literally dying of despair in the waiting room. And Isaiah writes these words to them. Isaiah chapter number 40, verse 27. Why do you say, O Jacob, and why do you speak, O Israel, saying, My way is hidden from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over by my God. Now, have you ever said anything like that while you were waiting? Have you ever been in a situation where you're just waiting for God to restore or to, or to, fix, uh, to fix or to finish or to heal or whatever? And you're like, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, why are you not fixing this? God, why have you not, have you forgotten me? Have you moved on and you've forgotten me? That's what the Jews were saying in this situation. And so the answer comes in verse number 28. God says, have you not known, have you not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is he weary. There is no searching of his understanding, or rather, he is never confused. Now listen carefully. He says to them, when you say in your waiting, God, I'm tired of waiting and obviously you've forgotten about me. Here's his answer. Don't you know that the God of creation, the Lord of all things, who is never weary, who never faints, and who is never confused, is Lord in your waiting. And he's Lord in your situation. He goes on to say in verse number 29, and he gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even young men shall faint and be weary, young men shall utterly fail. But they that wait upon the Lord, take your pen if you're a note taker, underline in verse 31, they that wait upon the Lord. It matters how you wait. If you're listening, say amen. It matters how you wait. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. 
I mentioned that sometimes we wait with frustration. Sometimes we wait on God like like a a husband waiting on his wife. (laughs) I'm going to get in trouble if I go down that road too, too far. We wait on God looking at our watch and doing this. We wait on God tapping our foot. We wait on God with frustration. But Isaiah says, wait in faith, not in frustration. Wait upon the Lord. Not on what the Lord is going to do. Wait upon the Lord. And when you wait in faith, this God of all creation who made the ends of the earth, who is the Lord, who is never weary, who is never faint, who is never confused, when you wait in faith, he will take all of those eternal and untiring and all understanding resources and he will pour those into your life. And when he does, you will mount up with the wings of an eagle. You will run and not be weary. You will walk and not faint and you will wait well when you wait in faith. When he says wait in verse 31, the word wait upon the Lord literally means to look forward to with eager expectation, to hope toward the promise that has been made. Even when you're not experiencing it, you're now hoping for it. It has not come to pass yet, but you wait by holding on to it. It's an interesting word that's translated wait. It literally means like a rope bound together. Our waiting is where we take our hope and we cast it onto the promise and we hold on to it like you hold on to an anchor. He says, wait that way. And when you wait like that, then God will give you grace and strength that you will be able to mount up with the wings as eagles. You will run and not faint. You will walk and you will continue to walk. And so I want us to learn how to do this today by being encouraged by David's waiting and more particularly by God's activity in the waiting of David. So go back to 1 Samuel 16. Look with me at verse number 13. 1 Samuel 16 and verse 13, where you have the invitation from God. You have the promise from God that David is going to be the king. 1 Samuel 16 and verse number 13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil, and he anointed him, anointed David in the midst of his brethren. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. There's the invitation. David, I'm going to make you the king. And then the coronation, 2 Samuel chapter 2, look at it, you're holding your finger there. 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse number 4 says, And the men of Judah came, uh, and they anointed David king over the house of Judah. There's the promise in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel 1, the fulfillment or the coronation the actualization of this promise in 2 Samuel chapter number 2. So let's survey a few of the chapters in between and watch what God was doing in the waiting and why this season of waiting was so important. Turn over one page to 1 Samuel chapter 18, and I want you to write this down. We're going to learn that in the waiting, God was transforming David into a mighty warrior. In the waiting... God was transforming David into a mighty warrior. Let me tell you why you're writing that down, that when David was anointed to be king, he was, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, he was a kid. 
We don't know exactly how old he was. We believe he was around the age of 15 years, and we believe that because of chapter 17, verse 33, where the Bible says that when, when David went to Saul and he said, don't worry about Goliath, the giant, I will go and fight him, King Saul said to him, you can't fight that giant. You are but a youth. That's the words, 17, chapter 17, verse 33. You are but a youth. And the word youth means... An adolescent boy. So when David was anointed king, he was an adolescent boy or even a little bit younger than that. And the, and the, the age range for that word would probably fall between the age of 12 and 17. So he's somewhere around the age of 15 when he becomes, or when he's anointed rather, to be king. Now, now David was a, he was a good looking boy as we've learned. He was probably a strong kid. He was a shepherd. And, and so I'm, I'm sure he was a strapping young man. And he had fought some battles, right? I mean, he fought the battle with the bear because the bear came in, took one of the lambs, and he chased it down and got the lamb back. And, uh, and he had fought a, a battle with a lion because he said to Saul, a lion came in, took one of the lambs. I went and got him back. And when he rose up against me, I grabbed him by the beard and killed him. That's pretty good. And he had fought a battle with Goliath. But it was, a, it was a brief battle. One stone, one sling, and it's over and Goliath goes down. He had fought some battles, but let me tell you what David had never done. He had never gone to war. He had never taken a shield and a sword and engaged in hand-to-hand combat. He was a good shot with a sling. He was a brave kid, but he wasn't a warrior. And if he was going to be the king of Israel, he had to be a mighty warrior. He would be required to lead his army into battle. And the only way that he could become a mighty warrior was by time and experience. And so during the waiting room, God transformed him from a strong shepherd boy into a valiant warrior. Look at 1 Samuel 18 and verse number 5. It says, and David went out wherever Saul sent him. Now, here's what you learn in chapter 18. After defeating Goliath, David then becomes this, this warrior soldier for Saul. And Saul is sending him out and bringing him back to take care of these little deployments or expeditions. He's like a special ops guy now, right? So he's going in and taking care of something and, and coming back. And eventually he begins to be given leadership over Saul's army because, look at verse number five, because the King James says he behaved himself wisely. The translation is he prospered. He had good success. Doesn't mean that he was being a foolish soldier and God gave him success anyway. It means that he was growing into a good soldier. He was acting wisely like a good soldier. And as a result of that, he had success. And in his success, he gained influence Until verse 5 says, and so Saul set him over the men of war. So he became a captain in Saul's army. He was accepted by all the soldiers. It says he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of all of God's servants. And what was God doing in the waiting room with David? He was taking a shepherd boy, turning him into a warrior. So much so that the Bible goes on to say in chapter 18 and verse number 6 that it came to pass as they came. Then when David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing 
to meet King Saul with their tambourines and with joy and instruments of music. And the women answered one to another as they sang back and forth. They said, Saul hath slain his thousands, but David hath slain his tens of thousands. By the time you get to chapter 18 and verse number 6 and 7, David has become a mighty warrior who has slain thousands in the name of the army of Israel. Let me tell you what God does in the waiting room. If you're listening, shout amen. In the waiting rooms of our lives, God turns boys into men. And God turns girls into godly women. And God takes self-focused, carnal Christians and he turns them into blazing lights of testimony for his glory. But he doesn't do it in the fulfillment of his promises. He does it in the waiting for those promises. I've seen it so many times over the years in ministry. I've seen God do this work in my own life in in different ways over the years. But I've seen it in so many times uh, in people's lives where they will come into a situation. Maybe they come to Christ for the first time. And they're going to go change the world. And they're excited. And they're going to have all this influence. And they think they're just going to launch out into this great uh, impact and influence. And God just takes them and just puts them in a quiet place. Just puts them in a waiting room. Maybe the waiting room has to do with where they're serving. Maybe it has to do with a circumstance in their lives. But God puts them in the waiting room and all of the selfishness and the, and the self-promotion and the carnality and the pride begins to melt away and the childlike weaknesses and fears begin to melt away. And in that quiet place, God begins to raise up this person that when they come out, they're going to have so much impact for the Lord. It's what God does in the waiting room. He turns Boys into men, girls into women. He makes us mighty warriors for his name. And so my encouragement to you is, if you're in the waiting room, let him change you. That's what he wants to do while you're there. He hasn't forgotten you. He's changing you while you're there. The second thing that God did for David in the waiting room is that while David was waiting, God was proving his power to him. Turn one page to chapter number 19. God was proving his power to David. Now, by the way, David would need to be a warrior, as I mentioned, because he would have to lead Israel's army into battle. But also, he needed to be a stealthy and a wise warrior because part of God's promotion of David meant that Saul was going to hate David. When David was being celebrated by the women of Israel and they were saying, Saul hath slain his thousands, that's good. But David is tens of thousands, that's better Saul became enraged and jealous because of David's popularity. And Saul determined that he would kill David. So much of David's waiting period is punctuated by these attempts of King Saul to literally take his life. And it's exactly what's happening in chapter number 19 of 1 Samuel. When David has had to flee for his life. Look at verse 18, 1 Samuel 19 verse 18, so David fled and he escaped from Saul and he came to Samuel, to Ramah, and told him all that Saul had done to him. Can you imagine David arriving in, Saul, or in Samuel's hometown and saying, Samuel, what's the deal? You anointed me to be king. I'm trying to be a faithful servant to Saul and he's just trying to kill me. 
So he comes to Samuel, and the Bible says in chapter number 18 that David and Samuel went down and dwelt at Nioth. Verse 19, and it was told Saul, saying, Behold, David is at Nioth and, uh, in Ramah. Now, by the way, before we read any further, I need to stop and tell you one thing about this passage. It'll help you understand it. Samuel was the leading prophet in Israel in that day, but he wasn't the only prophet. There were other prophets, and there were students, pupils of Samuel. And Samuel led what we would call, what the Bible would call in some places, a school of the prophets. And you read about the schools of the prophets Several times in the Old Testament, Elijah had a school of prophets. Samuel led other prophets. It's essentially a community led by the prophet that God has raised up and training other prophets. You might liken it to a monastery where Jesuit priests might uh, go live in the mountains and study scripture together and sing and chant and, and be together over around the, the things of God. That, that might be a good comparison. You could even compare it to a church. Like we, we are a community. And if somebody came into our church today, they would see us speaking the things of God and singing the things of God. Well, that's what's happening at Nioth. Samuel is there with the other prophets. They're celebrating what is true of God. They're praising God. And they're speaking or prophesying what is true of God. All right, with that understanding, watch what happens. Verse number 20, Saul sent messengers or soldiers to arrest David. And when those soldiers saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as appointed over them, then the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they began to prophesy. If y'all are listening, say amen. This is a beautiful thing. You've got the school of the prophets, Samuel leading it. David's hiding out with these prophets. He sees these soldiers coming to the school of the prophets to arrest him. All the worship is happening amongst the prophets. And as the soldiers get close, they're swept up in the power of the Holy Spirit. And they stop their threats against David. They lay down their swords and they join the church. They join the school of the prophets. Well, Saul gets word. Those guys have now joined with Samuel. Look at what happens in verse number uh, 21. So it was told to Saul, and so he sent more soldiers, more messengers, and look what happened to them. And they prophesied likewise. The second group began to prophesy as well. Verse 21 goes on to say, and so Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied. As, you just got to know when you're beat, Amen. You got to like don't send anybody else because everybody that comes down there threatening to take David and arrest him and have him killed, they just start praising God and, and singing the the the, uh, the truths of Scripture. Well, Saul decides, look, if you want something done, you got to do it yourself. So I'm not sending any more soldiers. I'll go myself. Keep reading. Look at this, verse number twenty three or verse twenty two. Uh, so Saul came to Ramah. And he came to a great well, which is in uh, Setu. He asked and said, where are Samuel and David? Someone said, behold, they're in Nioth and Ramah. So he went there to Nioth and Ramah. And the Spirit, if y'all are listening, say amen. amen. The Spirit of God came upon Saul also. And as he went on, he prophesied until he got to Ramah, to Nioth, to the school of the prophets. And so the text tells us that David leaves Ramah. But as he leaves, looking behind him, he sees the murderous Saul 
on his face, on the ground, praising God. Now here's the point. God was teaching David, it doesn't matter what Saul wants to do, I will take care of you. And that's the whole point. That it's in the waiting room that God was proving to David his power and his care. It's in the waiting room that we learn that God is faithful. It's in the place where we're set on the sideline and we're not seeing the resolution that God says to us, I am with you. And even if somebody comes with a sword in their hand and the threats of murder on their lips, if I want you safe and protected, they will join the worship songs in the waiting room. God proves to us his power. David would need to know that during the years of his reign. He would need to know when he faced the challenges that God was going to take care of him. The third thing that God did for David when he was in the waiting room is that God was gathering David's people to him. It was in the waiting room that God gathered David's people. You know, all of us need people to share the journey with us. We do. None of us need to journey alone. We all need people around us. David was no exception to that. And when he fled from Saul, he fled alone. He left by himself. But watch what happens in chapter 22. Look in second, uh, I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 22. Verse 1 says, David therefore departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers in his father's house, his family, heard that he was in Adullam, they went down there to him. Now thank God for family. Amen? Thank God for faithful family who would not let him be alone and they were gathered to him. And somebody once said, I've told you this before, that our lives are like trains on a train track and, and, and we go through our entire life down that train track and we stop through many stations along the way and along the path of our lives, people get on and off of our train. And, and, and we stop at a station, they pile on, we go a little, they go a little ways with us and they pile off. It's just the way it is. But thank God that when you get to the end of the line, the people who will be with you will be a few friends and your family will be there. And not all family is faithful, but thank God for faithful family. But what only is family that God assembled to him there? Look at verse number two. It says, and everyone that was in distress and everyone that was in debt and everyone that was discontented, everyone that was in the waiting room, everyone that was enduring difficulties like David was, they were discontented, they were in distress, they were in trouble. All of these people, verse 2 says, they began to gather themselves unto him and he became a captain over them. What happened in chapter number 22 is that God began to gather an army. He began to as assemble an army that some people might have considered an army of misfits. But he began to assemble David's mighty men. And these 400 in verse number 2, they would ultimately become about 600. And of those 600, there would be about 30 of them that were really David's mightiest men. And within the 30, there was an inner circle group of about three. But the point is that while he was in the waiting room running for his life, God was assembling people to him. You know what you need? You need people around you. And sometimes God puts you in the waiting room because he needs you to stay where you are while he brings some people into your life. Maybe it's the people in your life group. 
Maybe it's family members, as I mentioned, or people you meet along the way, but God is gathering people. It was 2005 when North Asheville Baptist Church bought 100 acres of land at exit 17. 2005. I thought we would build our new campus and relocate to this property in 2006. I mean, how hard could it be, right? I thought we would just go. It would just happen. God would just do it that quickly. We didn't even start. We didn't even have a bulldozer on the property until 2012, 13. We didn't move into this new campus until 2017. It took us 12 years we were in the waiting room. And I could take you to within an inch, I I believe, of the spot in our lower field near the creek in our current soccer field where I laid on my face on more days than one And said, God, we can't do this. Why is it not happening? What's taking so long? We're never going to, it's never going to be accomplished. And you know what God was doing in those 12 years? He was bringing some of you here. He was assembling his mighty men and his mighty women. And he knew that before we could leave the waiting room and move into the next season of Kingdom Impact, he needed to bring some people to us. And I'm so glad he made us wait so that you would make this journey with us. That's what God does in the waiting room. He brings people to us. Last thing, in the waiting room, God was growing David's character is growing David's character. You see this in chapter number 24 in this famous encounter that Saul has with David in the cave at En Gedi. Look at 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. It came to pass when Saul was returned from following the Philistines that it was told him, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And so Saul took 3,000 men. Now, why did he take so many people? Because remember, David had an army at this point of upwards of 600 men. He took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and he went to seek David and his men upon the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheep coats by the way where there was a cave and Saul went into the cave, the King James says, to cover his feet. Can I translate it for you? You may not want me to. He went into the cave to use the bathroom. And so he lays his robe off. He's doing his business and he doesn't know that in the Shadows and the crevices of that cave are David and his 600 mighty men. He went into the very cave where they were hiding. And all of David's men are going, get him. Now's your chance. God's delivered him into your hand. Take your sword and slay him. And so here's what David does. And many of you know the the story. He slips up quietly behind Saul. He takes his robe and he just cuts off a piece of the of the fabric on the bottom. And then he goes back into the shadows and he says to his men, listen to these words, I will not raise my hand against God's anointed. That's God's man. He may be wrong, he may be trying to kill me, but until God takes him off the throne, he's the king. And I will not raise my hand against him. And the text goes on to tell us that Saul finishes up, he goes out of the cave and David follows him out and he says, Saul, and he bows down before him and he says, do you see I have this part of your robe I've cut off? I could have cut your throat. I could have killed you. But David says, God will judge between you and me. 
and God will take care of you. And that cave experience was a test of David's character. Would David take matters into his own hands or would he trust God to accomplish the promise that he had given? Well, ultimately, Saul does die. Not at the hand of David. But if you turn over to 1 Samuel chapter 31 and verse number 6, the Bible says that he dies in a battle with the Philistines. Verse 6 says, and so Saul died and there were there, uh, he died there and his three sons and his armor bearer and all his men, the same day they all died together. And it's in the very next book, immediately following that, chapter 2 of 2 Samuel, where David now is anointed or crowned king. All right, so let me close. What are you waiting for? What are you waiting for God to finish or to do or to fix? Whatever it is, while you're waiting, let him transform you. Let him make you a man or a woman of God. That's what he's doing. That's what he wants to do. While you're waiting, let him prove to you his power and care. Don't get angry. Don't say, God, you've forgotten me. God, why have you passed over me? He is the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth. He has not forgotten you. Let him assure you of his power. While you're in the waiting room, let him teach you uh, to grow in character. Let him transform you into a man or a woman of trust. And while you're in the waiting room, receive the people that he sends to you because he's going to surround you with people who are going to go with you into that next season. Now, there's one last thing I need to say to you, and, and then we're going to close. And I mentioned it at the beginning, but I just want to close by saying it again. It is that the waiting room is a dangerous place. And it's possible for you to make life-altering mistakes in the waiting room. And I'm not going to read it. I, I want you to go read it later, but for the sake of time, I won't. It's 1 Samuel 29. And here's what you should know, that in 1 Samuel 29, David comes that close to totally derailing what God was doing. That close to maybe not becoming the king of Israel. And God protected him from it. So here's what I would say to you in the waiting room. Three things you need to do. They're self-explanatory. I don't even need to preach them. I'm just going to give them to you. Number one, when you're in the waiting room, talk to the Lord often. Pray a lot. Keep in close communication with the Lord. Number two, let him talk to you. Read your Bible often. Keep reading it. Psalm 130, verse number five says, I wait, I wait upon the Lord, and in your word I hope while I wait. When you're waiting, talk to the Lord often. Let him talk to you through his word. Number three, ask godly people for help. He's going to bring them around you. Ask them for wisdom. Now, here's the key. Don't ask stupid people for help, okay? Because stupid people give stupid advice. <laughs> Ask godly people for advice and guidance. And if you'll do that, then here's what will happen. Are you listening? If you'll wait like this in faith, the creator of the ends of the earth, the everlasting God, the Lord, who never grows weary, he never grows tired, he's never confused. He will pour 
that power and strength and wisdom into your waiting so that while you wait, you will mount up with wings like eagles. You will run and not be weary and you will walk and you will keep on walking until God fulfills his promises.